0: Welcome to DevMode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Jonathan Melville from MDD in Atlanta.
1: I'm Matt Stein from Working Concept in Seattle. And I'm Michael Ragg from Top Shelf Craft in
0: Texas. And today we have on Jen Bloomberg, uh, co-founder of Next Solutions. Jen, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. So today we are going to be talking pricing medium to large size projects. We want to keep everything I think pretty open today. Just go back and forth talk about um, how we uh, how we approach business business development on medium to large projects, and then yeah, how we price them. First, Jen, tell me a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Next Solutions.
2: Sure. So um, I'm a software development and co-founder of Next Solutions. We do uh, we're sort of a combination between a software development agency doing custom work for hire projects. And we also have a few products that we sell in a software as a service type of model. So we're a team of eight people and we work with n- usually nonprofit organizations or government agencies and are starting to work with businesses now as well.
0: Okay. And you're in the great New York City area. Do you keep everything pretty local? Or are you someone that's gotten outside of New York?
2: So our team is fully remote. Uh, so normally... Oh. Uh, at any given time, we'll be in five or six different countries, which is pretty cool. And we've got—we work with organizations in Canada, where we're headquartered, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, South America, as well. So we're trying to just dominate the world, as you can see.
0: I love it. Yeah, I'm looking at your LinkedIn. It says here that you you have three nationalities, three languages, and have lived on five continents.
2: Yeah, I should probably take that down. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit much. But yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, it, it's. It's impressive. Great. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in, you know, medium to large size. I mean, this episode kind of, I think, came about through some discussions over uh, the now defunct craft Slack, uh, which has been overrun by Slackbot, And, you know, we all stand fearful of the Slack bot. And, you know, now uh, maybe on Discord we can have discussions. But, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how, you know, I don't know if I was there for the original discussion, but, you know, this episode really, I think, came about from some discussion you had with Andrew on pricing medium to large size projects.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it really speaks to the openness of that Slack, which I guess is now Discord, and that people are... Feeling, people feel comfortable to be able to talk about things which are often private. And pricing, I think, especially in our industry, can be quite opaque. Mm-hmm. To, to give an example, before we had this discussion, um, I was helping a, a friend of mine who works for a decently large-sized magazine in New York, and they had procured quotes for a web redesign. And she had asked me to explain the difference in the three quotes. For the mm-hmm. exact same thing, there was a $20,000 quote, a $45,000 quote, and then an eighty thousand dollar quote, and I could not, for the life of me, explain the discrepancy in what was being offered um, and the price. So yeah, they were all they were all planning to do, a, you know, simple CMS, WordPress. Often there didn't seem to be any fancy rocket science in what was going to be delivered, and yet the pricing was four mm-hmm. x. You know, the, the the highest price was four x what the lowest price was. And Sure, that, I, yeah. I can tell
3: you the difference, Jen. <laughs> the the difference <laughs> is that the one that put in the uh, eighty grand bit. Yeah. They've got an espresso bar at their agency,
2: <laughs> and, <laughs> and foosball table, and some yeah, and they do your laundry. Yeah, but but it really got me thinking about our own agency and how we price projects, and I realized that I didn't really know how other agencies price things. So it would be good to talk about. And then it seemed like on the, on the channel that other people were interested as well.
3: So to frame the discussion real quick, when we talk about medium to large size projects, we're talking about projects that are into five figures and occasionally bleeding over into six figures,
2: right? That's right.
0: Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the way that I think about it is not always, always, you know, not always about the price of the project, but also just the size of the company. And, you know, I personally don't do work at this point for small kind of definitely not mom and pop uh, operations, as well as, you know, it, it comes down to sometimes you get a, a request from someone and they're definitely not a mom and pop anymore. But you also know that you're not going to be able to develop to give them the value back that they're going to pay for your rates. Um, so I think it's also just you know getting to that next level of project and seeing that and be able to then bid on those projects. And I think it's two things. It's probably, there are people listening today that are going to want to say, I would love to be able to bid on those projects, but right now I don't feel like I can. I don't feel like I have the team size or the experience Mm. working on those projects. And then also pricing. So I think we'll talk about both.
3: Well, you know, I was recently contacted by someone who's on a smaller team, but is bidding on a very large project, Mm -hmm. right? And instead of saying, "Uh, you know, I don't know if we're ready to bid on that. What he started doing was reaching out to people, including me, so that he had a team ready if if lightning struck and they got the bit. Yep, <laughs> you know? yep. So, I mean, that's a way to do it. But why don't we talk about the different ways that we can try to go in and determine pricing for these kind of medium to large size projects. So one way is hourly, right? What does everyone think of hourly? Very, very difficult
4: uh, mm. to do this accurately. I mean, when you consider... I sort of think about it like doing a home renovation if anybody's ever done that. I mean you can you can sort of scope it out in your brain all you want. Like hey, I think it's going to go this way, we're going to go in it's going to cost this much to rip the countertops out and then but inevitably when you take that wall down, you're going to find that asbestos you didn't think about or whatever. And mm-hmm. so uh, you know you can you can do your best to kind of ballpark a, a large or medium or large size project in terms of hourly, but this is very difficult to do. I find that value pricing is much more. Um, mm-hmm. Effective
1: way to do that. What is value pricing? Well, well wait, wait before we before we go to value, oh, we should we should clarify that you can price hourly in the sense that you can estimate and even fix the price on a project based on how many hours you think it can take. But also, you can bill time and materials and. In that case, your client is basically writing you a a blank check for some amount of time, be it a day at a time, a week at a time, a project at a time to just do the work. And and that's a lot safer, but a lot harder to sell.
3: Mm. Yeah, because it's open ended, right? Because hourly, in some sense, Jonathan doesn't hourly protect us. And from the scenario you're talking about, you know, if we do get in there and we do find that it's going to be a whole lot more work, aren't we protected because we're billing hourly and we just are going to bill them for well, however that's, long
4: it takes? that's different if you're if you're saying, if you have like this open-ended pricing structure where you, you tell your client, you know, I'm, my best guess is I think it's going to cost this much, but, you know, mm-hmm. who knows what, you know, when we get into it, if it's, if you know, we're going to have to rack up more time and the client's totally cool with that. I was just saying, if you like, have this hard and fast estimate where you're like, my estimate is it's going to take me X amount of hours at this cost, and then the client expects that that's exactly what it's going to cost them, and then it's just up to you to eat the rest of it if you know if there's some surprises. I think that's where you get into dangerous territory
0: with our. <laughs> that's it's like the, the worst wars. of all worlds, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think it's it's hard once you get into medium sized projects. Time materials is good when a project is truly nebulous. You don't know what the scope is going to be or how long it's going to take. And I think the biggest thing. If you, if I know some very successful business people that run their entire operation time and materials, I think you have to give an estimate. You have to then give the client frequent updates on how you're tracking against that estimate based on what you thought it was going to be. There's a lot of overhead that going in going into it, and it also means that you know that you're never going to be underwater on a project, which is nice. The other side of that though and this goes you know do you go hourly or go you know fixed bid or value however you want to think about that is that you also there could be a project where you know that the project is worth a lot of money to this client and because of your expertise and the tools you know you can build it pretty quickly and then you know kind of separate yourself out from how long it takes to build versus what it's worth to them and we'll get to that in a moment so i think you lose the chance for that if you are, are sticking only with hourly
4: and also i think the larger the client the easier it is to have this arrangement where you're like you know i this is my best guess but uh, if we're going to go hourly it could go up to this point it could be more we just don't know the the larger cl- more complicated projects and the larger clients tend to be more okay with that. Whereas the more medium sized clients are more protective of, you know, hitting this ceiling because they don't want you to just be able to rack up an unlimited bill for them. And yeah, so they're I more think that's costly. exactly
0: right. Yeah. If you're I working one, for IBM or, or someone that's, you know, has just money is no, maybe not no object, but they get to the point where time materials becomes object. okay for them again. Yeah. And they want to just make sure that every time they have a request, you're not going to hit them with a change order or a scope change or yeah. this isn't in our initial fixed bid you know, estimate and they want to just be able to have you go and, and build and build and build. But I'd say I'm not at that point yet in terms of what I'm billing for where we're just get you know, given unlimited freedom to just work on everything they want. We usually end up in, in fixed bid and yeah, we're just trying to, you know, it comes back to Jen's original thing of is it a 20 or a 40 or an 80? Kind of what's it going to take us to build? What's it worth to them? How do we make sure we're not going to, end up in the red on it. I found that
5: every client seems to respond pretty well also to something that's really simple, which is when you're setting up the contract saying, defining exactly what happens if you get to the point where you've hit the upper end of your estimate. So they know, they have the assurance, for example, that you will stop and check in and Mm -hmm. have them guide what they would like done so that they don't end up with, you know, like a double or triple the budget surprise once you're all done and excited. That's usually yeah, seems one to
0: really of the things appreciate. that, yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking about going into this, this episode is a lot of, a lot of times when you get to medium and large size organizations is that they're willing to pay to mitigate risk. And I think Matt, that's part of it. They want to know that it's okay if, you know, at some point you hit that, but tell us in advance, make sure you never leave us with a project that is 60% complete because we ended up spending a whole lot more time early on in the project and we didn't actually get some that's ready to, to push live or, or get out the door. Jen, what's been your experience? Have you worked with, you know, I, I'm very lucky. I worked for a large agency when I was starting out, which kind of exposed me to medium and large size organizations and specifically some very large nonprofits. Are those, when you say nonprofits, are you working with those larger ones or are they the smaller no- nonprofits um, or where, where are you working these days?
2: Yeah, at this point, we're working with larger nonprofits. We still work with quite a few of the smaller ones. And we find that the pricing model for them, we often have to do, you know, be creative with the pricing model, often not even allowing them to pay upfront because they can't, but they pay over time. And we used to do that quite a bit. Now we're sort of of the mind that. You know, money now is better than money later, and, and we prefer to, to, to charge with value-based pricing. That being said, the I think I agree with you guys that the, the smaller the organization, the more strict they are with their budgets. And our mm-hmm. hourly-based pricing is quite easy to justify to them, especially if they're not that well-educated in what they're purchasing, which I found with a lot of organizations, even larger ones, don't really know what the difference is between a, a website and a, a web app that actually... It does mm. some does some fancy footwork so I found in my experience with a bit of education we're able to to charge more value based prices the 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 hourly based it it definitely does work because it's easy to understand the, the the one sort of big downside that I've experienced is that we end up getting compared to cheaper developers that they find on eLance or Upwork and they don't really they don't really understand the difference between what we're offering right. and 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 what they offer
0: Sure. Yeah. And, I, and that's a, a tough thing. And if they're going based on price and they're looking for the lowest price, I mean, I think we've on the show talked about, you know, if you go through the lowest bidder, you can expect the lowest quality, but it, it can be hard for them because they may feel like a developer is a developer. And how who, who are you to say that you're better at doing this than this other person who's charging you know $7 an hour out of a foreign country? And yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. And I usually, if I see someone that's looking for that, we're probably not a good fit and they may need to kind of, Try out an Elance project first, and then come back to me at a later date. Come, come to you when it's blown up in
1: their face, <laughs> yeah. right? and, and I,
0: then it really
3: costs. You know, a lot. I, I don't yeah. think
1: that the lowest, the lowest bid isn't always the lowest quality. I, I don't think that that is yep. is yep. like just a good assumption. But what I know is that I don't want to be a participant in a race to the bottom. So. Yep. You know, it, It may be that there is someone just as qualified as me who, by virtue of their cost of living, has a much lower rate than I do. And that's fine. Like, good. Go build that thing and have it be successful. And you're not the right fit for me as a client because I have my cost of living and that informs my cost to you. So it's like, fine. Cheap doesn't always mean bad, but sometimes it does and I don't want to be on the hook, if that's what it means. I'll just kind of bow bow out of that race.
3: Michael, first of all, no one compares to you.
1: You're incomparable. (laughs) Thank you for for saying so. You're not wrong.
3: Yeah. But I I want someone to define for me, though. We've talked about value-based pricing. What what does that mean? Tell me what value-based pricing is. Jonathan, you want to go for this? Hmm, Well, I mean, I'll give you
4: my definition of it.
3: Hey, all, you all are talking about this. Yeah. So you, you yeah. damn well better be able to define it. Okay.
4: So, I mean, in the simplest form of, uh, of the definition of the word, I guess it would be in, in, instead of pricing something by the hour, you're saying, well, here is what my time is worth. Like the entirety mm. of my time and all the resources I'm going to have to throw at this project to get it done for you. The value of all of that, the sum of all of that. I see as this number. That's how I would define hmm. value-based pricing.
1: Yeah. I think it's it's easy, uh, it's easy it's easier for, for me to define value-based pricing based on what it's not, and it's it's not a price based on your cost plus margin to complete a project. Mm-hmm. It's it's a price that is based on the value that you're adding to an organization or to, to a project. So if, okay, so here's an easy example. Your current payment gateway charges you 4% per transaction and Stripe is going to charge you whatever they charge 2.7, 2.9%. Okay. So you want me to move your donation website from your current payment, payment gateway to Stripe, which charges a lower rate. And you have a million dollars in donations flowing through this thing you know, every year. So 1% of a million dollars is 10,000. Okay. So it may take me four hours to switch some API keys and write you a little plug-in or something, whatever, that allows you to take advantage of this payment gateway that charges you 1% less. Well, in your case, that means that I just added $10,000 to your bottom line every year. So if you were going to pay me hourly, you might pay me $500 for that job, but I've added $10,000 of value. And so I might ask you to pay me a little bit more than I would if I were billing you time and materials, because the value that I've added to you in actual dollars is is much greater. And so it's kind of a shift in perspective from how much does this cost me to do, and I'll add a margin and invoice you to that. And it's towards just a way of thinking where you really understand how someone's business or organization works and what the actual bottom line impact of your work is going to be, mm-hmm. and and you ask them to give you some of that value in exchange for your work.
0: And let me take a step now and say, has anyone ever priced it exactly like that, where there is a very easily calculated amount of revenue or new profit that's going to be brought in by a specific dev project? Because I found that that is a good way of explaining it in an academic sense, but in the real world, there's, I, I find there's usually not something that is as black and white as that. Let
2: me, let me, I think there there was one, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Absolutely oh, not, the, go ahead, Jen. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there, there was one sort of eye-opening time when, with a medium-sized nonprofit where they told us that with the system that we had built them, they the system was basically doing the job of an admin person. Mm-hmm. So. We, we thought about that and in our next delivery of such a system, that was what we used to justify the price. Yep. And they they actually, it made a lot of sense to them. I think you mentioned sort of shift in perspective. Uh, if you think about how much it costs to have an admin person do sort of these manual tasks and you would have to hire that person, pay their benefits and pay them for year, year upon year, then the cost of a medium-sized software project becomes a great deal from their perspective.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good... Way to put it, when you have an app or something where you can easily quantify and say, you know, a CFO spends, you know, four hours uh, a week doing this task, our app is going to bring that down to a half hour a week, you know, take a look at how much you're paying. And then it makes it easy to say, okay, five five $599 a month is really makes sense compared to what we spend right now in terms of time of what this person has to do and what else they could be doing. I, I think where I find is value-based pricing is a term that gets thrown around and, for me, it's not so much that I've done the math and I've calculated everything and I, I've found that there's a number that is of value to the client, but it, it's more, it's kind of divorcing the, the the worth or the cost of the project away from the sheer amount of labor that I think it's going to take and then what our mm. typical hourly rate is. To me, that's kind of your your floor of like, obviously we want to make sure we're clearing at least this, but if we know from this client, maybe what sector they're in, what their risk tolerance is, that if I go $20,000 over what our cost is, it's really not going to phase them. And it's going to mean that I have some time to do maybe a few nice things for them that we know are going to come up, you know, just through the project, and I'm not going to have to ding them on every little less, little bit of scope creep. And it's just, it's somewhere between there. It's like, here's what I think it's worth to them. Here's what my floor is in terms of my hours and hourly rate. And I find there's somewhere in the middle so that both sides are kind of winning.
3: Yeah, for what it's worth, my opinion on the value-based pricing is, so if someone wants to hire me, I, I can be your, I can be a good little code monkey and I can I can write the code that you need and I can build a nice thing. But at least in my opinion, the value that I bring is being able to figure out what to do, right? And it's one thing to be given a task and say, implement this, but it takes a, a pretty good amount of experience to figure out both from a, a biz dev perspective and also from a technical perspective, what would be the best way to tackle this problem and what technologies and practices can I use to build the best thing for my client, right? So mm-hmm. I I kind of see myself almost as like a CTO for hire that can also then get the work done. And that's where, that's kind of where I think that I bring the value, but I, I want to throw something out there to see if anyone else does this, which... <laughs> When you're looking at value-based pricing, do you also consider the value to, to you? In other words, if a project I was looks, gonna bring this up. Yeah, if a project just looks <laughs> yeah. awful, do you ever just jack up the price to a level where you don't really want to do it, but if they're willing to pay that, you're gonna do it?
4: I've done that,
3: but I've also done
4: the reverse. Okay. So I have I've been in situations where I was I would be willing to take the work, but it had to be worth it for me because I knew what was coming. I knew what a headache it was going to be. And if they decided to walk, you know, I was fine with that too. Yeah. But I've also been in situations where I felt like it would be worth it to me to lower my estimate or my fee for doing a project because it would, it would, the project would maybe lead to more work down the road. And, um, (laughs) Sometimes that's a very tricky <laughs> that's a very tricky judgment call because you don't want to feel like you are devaluing yourself and there's this very rare and you know, yeah. uh, this
3: reminds me of the the trope of people contacting you and you know, they're, they're like, know. can you lower yeah. your price? You and they,
4: in my company or, yeah. Well,
3: yeah, they tell you it can be a portfolio item, right? Yeah, and it, <laughs> exactly. And that's why I was hesitant
4: to even bring it up because this is like one of the most insidious traps
0: that you can find yourself in um, as a designer. As a yeah. I've had this happen where, you know, I did a project or I kept a, a client on an older rate for a long time just because they've been a good client. And they, they were good enough to make a referral to a new client. I'm like, oh, great. And here's our rate, which is now the, our current rate. And they're like, oh, but your your old client, they get this rate. And how come we aren't also give, being given this rate? So you also, yeah, once you devalue yourself with one project or one client, that may then, if they do have a referral, lead others to expect the same. Yeah, I, I've only done it one time. No. And it was like a clear case where
4: like I, I felt like it was going to lead to more work. I was actually right in that scenario, but I probably would not do that in ninety nine point nine percent of
1: yeah, and I think the the rule is like you always have to cover your shop rate, right? You have to you have to know yeah. what your shop rate is, and no matter what, just as a matter of principle, you always cover your shop rate.
3: But what is a shop rate?
1: Y- your your shop rate is the amount of money that you need to bill per hour in order to pay all of your bills. Okay. So you've calculated how many billable hours you have in a year and what your expenses are in a year. And that is that is the minimum that you can ever bill to either a client or to yourself. If you're gonna do something pro bono or whatever, like you just have to have that number in mind and and you have to cover your shop rate always. But I think it's legit if I have a great relationship with a client and you know I'm trying to sell them on a giant thing tomorrow that I don't necessarily need to extract all of the value today that I might be able to if I was just going to really push it right like maybe I could could bill you 5 times my shop rate today but it would make it harder for me to sell you the bigger thing tomorrow so i so i won't try to ask you for all of that value today i will let that relationship develop because i i think that there's you know something better for us as collaborators that's that's on the horizon, fine. You know, I'll only charge you 1.3 times my shop rate today. So you can adjust your margin to suit your, your sales strategy or your referral strategy or your client relationship strategy or whatever. Adjust your margin, but always cover your shop rate.
3: And I firmly believe that you become the kind of work that you do, right? So be careful. About taking a lot of these, you know, quick or smaller jobs or jobs using older technologies where you don't think the future is. I I really do think Mm -hmm. that you become the kind of work you do. You become known for it and you become good at whatever it is you do. I mean, something that I think Jonathan and I try to do is to push ourselves a little bit on every project to adopt something that is where we think things are going. Because we want to be known for that and we want to get good at that, right, Jonathan?
4: It's the Wayne Gretzky strategy. You <laughs> <gotta> <laughs> escape where the puck's gonna
3: be. Boom. Yeah. I gonna say, I'd Some almost project. rather
0: like do a pro bono project than a, you know, heavily discounted project. Because at least then right. you can say, okay, we're doing it to help out. Obviously, no one thinks you're gonna be doing pro bono projects going forward for every project. And it's something where, you know, they, they may then really want to tell other people about you and say they did a great thing for us. They normally charge an arm and a leg, but they helped us out. I was an economics major and there's some study about where if you had a pile of like Hershey kisses and you told someone that you know they're one cent for a Hershey kiss versus like 25 cents for some other chocolate, people you know they they might be kind of fairly split between the the penny one and the 25 cent one. But if you give someone you know uh, something that's completely free, they're going to want that. And I don't know where this is analogy is heading, but I'm sure there's something there.
3: I have no idea what you're talking
0: about, but I but I, but I am
3: I am shocked. That that uh, Jonathan sets up the Wayne Gretzky analogy or, or <laughs> saying or whatever, and that Jen, as a Canadian, doesn't chime in on that.
2: What's up? <laughs> I was I was laughing to myself, but I just made sure the microphone was on. mute. I appreciate the Wayne Gretzky. I appreciate the Wayne Gretzky analogy. I actually, did it. Sure that I did it for Jen. One. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think the chocolate one is is actually useful though, because people do think that you know they they are getting what they pay for so if if you charge them a heavily discounted amount they're still going to expect to be able to call you whenever they mm-hmm. want to ask for ask yep. for maintenance to ask for updates um and to get that rate that they've locked you in on. Yeah. Whereas, um, at least in my experience, the the pro bono projects, you can kind of have fun with them and play around, and they're just happy. They they've gotten something. They've gotten a great deal, and they you know I've gotten cases of wine from clients from for doing free work. Whereas I wouldn't have been able to to charge very much. We kind of had a a separate discussion later on about sending clients to you know Squarespace. If I'm allowed to say that here, um, but, but those, but those projects wouldn't make us money anyway. Sure. So I think that the answer is there. We're not gonna. You're not gonna beat our shop rate. We'll probably lose money on them. So either do it for free or forego it for a bigger project.
1: Yeah. And a version of that that I sometimes find myself playing with is when there is some instance where there's some scope creep or or even a new idea like there's a new idea on a project that that we want to pursue but i'm not going to be able to to build to build the client for it but i personally want to pursue it or i find it strategically important to pursue it i will say to a, a client okay based on this adjustment like this adjustment is going to generate such and such amount of cost and in this case, I'm going to do that work as a gift to y'all and 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 not bill you for it, but I will still send them an invoice for that work based on the normal rate and then I will line item out that item based on whatever reason I I want to give them for like I'm not going to bill you for this, but like that's kind of that's kind of my version of like if I can't charge you what I need to for the Hershey's Kiss, but I still wanna like give it to you, I, I will still invoice you for it so that you see that price mm-hmm. tag. You, yeah. you see the value of what mm-hmm. I've given you and you understand that it took something from me to it it just it wasn't just a, a willy-nilly thing that like didn't cost me anything just cuz it didn't cost you anything. I want you to see that number and understand that I've given you something of value and then, you know, the next time something like that comes along, it's much easier for me to say this is this is the value of it and in this case I'm I'm not in a position to eat that cost and but you've you're you're used to seeing price tags associated with with those little things and that's kind of my my version of if I can't can't charge you what I need to, I'll give it to you, but I still want you to know. What what the value is? I still want you to register the actual value rather than a discounted thing.
3: Yeah, so or, I, I think
5: or not the... knowing that that value is there. Right. I think that I've just started doing that with things like software updates and things that I do usually when I'm under the hood, like doing other things. Mm-hmm. And the client usually doesn't know, and I, I don't need to start charging in most cases, but exposing those things, exposing that value and, and at least giving them a clue that it's theirs. I
1: think that's well, and you're doing them a service by building their pattern recognition around the costs of development or maintenance or whatever whatever it is that you're doing. You know, that's part of the education is them being able to, to kind of form the map in their head of what the costs are and when the costs are, even if there's, you know, you're not deducting money from their bank account.
3: I I think something to keep in mind regarding value-based pricing. I think some people have some sense of guilt about, you know, if something only takes them an hour to do, you know, why are they billing so much money Mm -hmm. to do it? But the reality is that, or the irony actually, is that the better you get at something, the less time it takes you to do it, right? But you would not have you would not be that good at it had you not put in all of those hours getting, you know, refining your skills and getting really, really good at it. And I think that that is even more the case when we're talking about higher level CTO ish decisions where it literally takes years or decades of experience to be able to come to a a conclusion relatively quickly about what direction to take something in, you know, and they're. Just don't undervalue yourself in terms of the amount of work that you have done, getting good at what you're doing. And also don't undervalue yourself in terms of how much work it took you to get to the place where you're at, where you're even able to make some of these higher level CTO-ish mm-hmm. or, or biz dev-ish decisions.
0: Yeah, I think it's good to know you know, from your client. I mean, I do research at times on you know, what are their revenues. If they're a private company, that's a little bit harder to find, but- if they're public or even if it's a nonprofit, you can see a little bit more about how they operate and what their margins are and, and try to understand mm-hmm. what they're playing with. And the other thing that I just to go back to what you said, Andrew, that I can't tell too much about of who this person is. But the best thing I ever heard, I was at a conference and someone was talking about a project they did that the, the deliverable was literally a document. Mm. I don't know number of pages. I can't remember but it was SEO related. Uh, they, this client, a very large corporation, <laughs> needed recommendations on platforms to use and not even, you know, like doing, you know, keyword stuffing or something like that. But they needed, you know, a high level analysis of, of a technology landscape. The project is one that this person or, you know, working for a firm had done so many times, they literally could knock it out in five or six hours. But right. the value of that document to the client was $75,000. So that's what they built.
3: Right. And, and yeah. probably in order to be able to produce that document, they had to spend a whole lot of time and experience learning
0: yep. stuff. Yep. Yep. Right. They were yep. paying for years of experience. And, you know, this is a corporation that's well known. And so they know that they were getting a good bit of analysis from them with their recommendation. And but yeah, it's, it's you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people that really insist on tying the, the costs to how much, how many hours it took. And I, I just, I think it's a little bit short-sighted. I mean, when Apple charges you for an iPhone, it doesn't cost, you know, what is it? $1,100 to make the 10s max. It, you know, might cost a few hundred right. dollars, but They know the market, they know what people are willing to pay. They're now getting some pushback, and maybe people aren't always willing to pay that much. But yeah, it's more based on what utility does it give to you? How many hours a day are you spending on this device? What does it let you do that you otherwise couldn't do? And that and then what are what is Samsung charging? What is Huawei charging? And that's where they can then settle on a price point based on the value to you and not, you know, the the raw materials plus a margin.
1: Yeah. And you know, I think that's that's actually you made a really good point. I think there is there's a really interesting balance between like the confidence of knowing your worth, but also the humility of, of knowing the market. Mm-hmm. And and that's a balance that I find myself playing with a lot. And the iPhone is actually a perfect example of that. Because when the iPhone came out, Apple's margins on a single iPhone were insane. And their margin on an iPhone, even the the really expensive iPhones, just mm-hmm. keeps going down. Because there the market has adjusted and there's so many more competitors. And there's so many more very worthy competitors who... In order to compete, are are operating with with less margin and, and or, or operating at a different scale or operating at, on a different plane of, of luxury or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like Apple's margins are going down, and I think it's really interesting to think about. You know, it can sound greedy to say like when you're the best at something, extract the maximum of amount of value while you can. But but I don't think that that's necessarily greedy. I think it's appropriate if you have invested in being ahead of the curve that has cost you something and mm-hmm. knowing i'm ahead of the curve i am providing more value i should receive more value but then also paying attention to know when the market has caught up and there are lots of other people who can provide that same amount of value and you know being willing not try to maximize so hard on on your margin because you're playing in a different market and and just like watching that time curve with different skills right or different different stuff that we do i think is is an interesting conversation unto itself just like having both confidence and also market realism and humility when we talk about pricing
5: and a, a concept of perceived value right um, yeah there's there's a, a really good podcast called how i built this i don't know if anybody else listens to that but um where they, they just interview the founders of different companies to talk about I love it. what yeah. it was like yeah. starting their company um and there's one that comes to mind for me um where they interview the founders of Warby Parker. Really, really interesting. And one of the things just before, so it was like a, a basically a college experiment for I think a business class or something. And at the point where they were actually making frames in, a, in an industry that has really, really high markup, they were about to launch with a product that would have been, yeah, I think, a... a Pair of frames would have been like ten dollars or something, <laughs> and they hired a marketing person that said, "No, no, 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 you can't do that. They'll be perceived as cheap." Yep. and so they raised it to ninety five dollars, and you've probably heard of them already because they're doing great. Yeah, um, and they're still way undercutting the the crazy margins that there are on frames. It was just a really interesting. Thing to hear
0: orby parker never heard of him. <laughs> yeah and, and yeah. again that goes back to my old economics class there was you know a story of a dog walker who was advertising five dollars a day to walk your dog or something like that and couldn't find anyone upped his prices to twenty dollars a day and you know was overrun with people who uh you know were looking for his services that yeah i think you know If I if I was working in house at a client, I went to someone's website and they had a little pricing table that says I've seen this on you know some very nice folks sites, but you know we'll do a five page website for four hundred ninety nine dollars. We'll do a fifteen page website for you know eight hundred dollars. To me, I would say like (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't think they're doing high quality work. They may be doing high quality work, but they're probably really undervaluing themselves if they are just because that's not how people tie the worth of the website to you know how many pages it takes or or rates there. So
4: there's a lot of
0: copy and paste um, to go with that.
1: <laughs> But I think you know I think Andrew's Andrew's point earlier kind of feeds into this, which is you, you kind of you can't rest on your laurels. You have to keep investing in your ability to add new value, mm-hmm. and 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 you have to kind of like like if you want to to keep moving forward in terms of a pricing standpoint, you have to understand that you are. Not just a service provider, you are a knowledge provider, and you're a context provider. And and the thing that you sell isn't code, right? I'm very fond of saying, I don't sell code, I sell sleep. <laughs> like the
0: value that sleep, like sleep.
1: That. <laughs> yeah, like like you will rest easier when your project is in my hands. You won't worry so much about. Overrunning your budget, or not meeting your deadlines, or not getting that promotion because you didn't impress your bo- like whatever it is that the real human value of my work is to the human on the other end of of the line in a project. That's what I'm selling. Is I'm I'm selling their confidence about whatever it is that they are worried about or whatever it is that they want. Like I'm turning their question marks into periods, and that's the value that I sell. It's not the code. And so yeah. If all you need is like an SEM rush report that tells you, you know, whether your site has meta tags or something, you you shouldn't pay me $10,000 for that report.
3: You should. Oh my God, you're, you're destroying the business model of just about every SEO consulting. You
1: should go, you should go to the person who says, yeah, I, I can do that report in an hour and I will charge you an hour for it. If all you want is that automated report that takes someone an hour to do or whatever. But if I hire you, Andrew, I know that I'm not just paying you, fingers crossed, I hope, I'm not just (laughs) paying you to run an automated report for me. I'm paying you to understand what that report tells you in the context of current SEO and SEM trends, in the context of my technology stack, in the context of my development process, in the context of my business model and the opportunities for me to improve my bottom line by mm-hmm. seeing you. like, I'm paying for that knowledge and that context that you have around the automated report that you're going to run for me. So it's, it's not a good business decision for me to pay someone $10,000 for a report that I know takes them an hour to generate, but it is appropriate for me to pay them $10,000 to add $10,000 to my bottom line. That You have to see yourself in that way. You have to see yourself as not the person who's running a report, but the person who knows how to take that the results from that report and add $10,000 to somebody's bottom line.
3: I've done the exact opposite a lot of times. That I've been called in to do consulting work, and I'm working with a, a client, and I see what they're paying these SEO firms to do for them. And I... I tell them to fire them (laughs) because where, and you should take the money that you're investing in hand tweaking keywords on a per page basis and put it into a good content strategy or put it into improving other parts of your site because you're just, you're wasting your money. Right. But, but Michael, when you said earlier that you didn't sell code, you sold sleep, like, I thought you were giving out ambient <laughs> prescriptions or something. Exactly. <laughs> no, you, don't, you don't
1: need the ambient. I'm saving you all of the money that you would. No. So so let me I would love to actually ask you all for, for a favor because I am probably like of of the people in this room, I have the most to learn on this topic. So like when it comes to, to value pricing, I think I'm like still on step one of of internalizing value pricing. For me, I think where value pricing sits in in my schema is more along the lines of the Warby Parker story. When I learned about value pricing, what it did for me was it gave me confidence about raising my hourly rates because I realized that the arbitrage between my hourly rates and the value that I was providing was so huge that I could be more expensive, but still be relatively cheap. It compared to the value right that's and and for me like i started my my business when i was 12 years old charging 5 bucks an hour and continued to when when you're 12 years old and you're trying to sell against agencies you have to massively underprice and overdeliver. And and I like continued massively underpricing and over delivering for many years past when my expertise merited that I should. Right. So I I like underpriced myself for a very, very, very long time. And when I finally learned about value pricing and I finally learned to to think in terms of really understanding someone's business and the bottom line impact I'm having, what I like the benefit that I gained was that I got confident about raising my hourly rates. But yeah. I'm still not really confident about actually approaching value pricing in terms of actual value because I don't really know how to work. Sometimes I do. So I would say, but like, I mean, and some of it,
0: honestly, I think is people just throwing out numbers saying, you know, I've clients of mine have raised their conversions by, you know, 5% on average and looking at what you have, then you can expect this. And some of that's a little bit magical thinking. One of the things that honestly I think has helped me the most, I've been very lucky and I'm actually curious to go around um, to Jen and everyone else, but who here has worked at, let's say like a large agency, somewhere that is maybe like 25, 30 plus, that's actually still at the smaller end of things in many regards. But has anyone here worked at a large agency previously? Not me. No. Not me. Negative.
1: Like I've done big projects, yep. but I've never worked at a, at a big agency. Jen?
2: No, I, I used to work at a management consulting company, which is sort of has a similar business model, but not a design or development agency.
0: Yeah. So I, I think one thing that I was very fortunate is that I started out a, a Boston firm here that does big, large, complex builds in, in Sitecore. Uh, later they went to Adobe Experience Manager Worked in another. Oh God, <laughs> um, where, you know, and ah. um, all I can say is that yeah. that changed my calibration on what a project can be worth to a to a client. If anyone's known just what the software of Sitecore can look like, or Experience Manager, you know, and Experi-
3: if they were working with Experience Manager and you were stuck in there, like that would make me want to become a sheep. <laughs>
1: Okay, okay. But so so this is so so this is leading up to my ask to you, which is I don't really have that exposure. And so when I'm working with a client that I already have a good relationship with because I did some like hourly work for them and really proved my value and now they really trust me, it's easy for me to have that conversation about the internals of their business so that I can really understand what my value is to them. Mm-hmm. If I'm approaching a new project. People are super cagey about all kinds of details that would be really valuable for me to know. So like, how do you approach those conversations? And what are the actual like, what's your strategy, like, not for extracting secret data that you shouldn't have, but like, to get someone to really let you into the internals of their business, so that you can understand the value that you're providing to them? Like, how do those conversations go for super big projects? Yeah,
0: so I would say two things. First, I had the luxury of working for a couple large agencies and they're really great well-run agencies. It's a great experience if you're just starting out that if you get the ability to work at an agency like that, um, it can teach you a whole lot. The other part there, and I'm just mindful that there may be some folks listening that are thinking, like, forget about pricing these projects. How do I get these projects? How do I even get to the place where I can start to talk about $10,000? Like right now I'm working at the Scraps I think it can also be good to try to partner up with a larger agency that needs some overflow dev work or has never worked with craft and you show them how easy it is to use. Um, because working with a larger agency can open a lot of doors into those projects. They may not be your projects. You'll be the, the subcontract subcontractor on them. But it can give you a lot of good exposure, as well as let you start to maybe build up a team so that you then get to the size where you can personally take on those projects by, you know, by helping a larger agency. The the thing where you say that, you know, sometimes someone's cagey, where you're like, well, you know, they clearly they have a business here, they're making some money. But I have no idea, like, are they in the WordPress mindset where they want someone who's going to take a $50 theme and and modify that a little bit and get out the door for $2,000? Or are they looking for really custom front end templating, careful integrations? that's going to think through marketing automation with them and do all those things. So A, I, I usually just try to sniff that out on a call. Yeah, What I don't do anymore is I don't write up a full proposal. Like if they tell me I don't have a budget, you know, I, I, I want to see what's out there. I don't anymore go and write up a proposal and just kind of like grab the dart and dartboard and like, just try to guess at a price that I think might be amenable to them, I'll throw out a number and say, okay, if I come back with $50,000, is that going to scare you? That, that's literally the line I use quite a bit. And I can learn a whole lot based on that. Sometimes they'll say, yes, oh my gosh, no, we were thinking of 20. It's like, oh, so you did have a budget. Yeah. Or if saying, yeah. no, 50 is great. I'm like, oh crap, I should probably change that to 75. Okay. But you know that that putting a number out like that kind of gets them into that place where they can really react to it. And sometimes you might see someone that says, "Actually, 50. If you think it's that low, maybe you don't understand the full scope of everything we're thinking of with this project. And that then it's you know then you can really get in and maybe find out that they have some weird ERP integration you need to do. And really, it's getting into that you know the six figure. Jen, what what's yeah. been? You know, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think you made a really good point when you. You say that you gotta throw out a number. Um, I guess for the econ people in here, is that called <laughs> that's called anchoring? Yep. Um, they there there's always a budget, and sometimes I think it was Michael. You asked, you know, how do you even go about asking? I think maybe one of the first steps you can do is ask and say, hey, you know, what's your budget? Do you have a budget? And often they'll actually just tell you, yeah, we're looking for a range between. You know, twenty thousand and thirty thousand, and then of course from there you can decide whether you want to pursue that or pursue the conversation further and say, well, actually, you know, what you're asking for is it's going to be difficult to, to to do within that range. You know, are you open to a discussion about about increasing the budget and and go from there? A lot of it sort of depends on the rapport that you have with them, and if you really are finding that they're being cagey in a way that you think you might not really go anywhere. I, again, I I agree that it's probably not worth it to put to, you know to spend a, a day or two of your time, which is worth, you know, a certain amount of money on a proposal that will go nowhere.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to get to your point earlier, Michael, and also what you were talking about a little bit, Patrick, I mean, when I'm first working with a new client, the initial contact is almost entirely me learning about their business. Right. And because I think that's where I can help to bring in the value. And if it's not, if that's not what they're interested in, if they're just looking for a gun to hire to build this thing, I'm not the right person for that job. You know, I, I think that where I bring the most value is where I can bring my biz dev and technical experience together, where I can learn about their business and figure out the best ways to solve their problems for them. So the initial contact that I have with clients is always me learning as much as i can about their business. Yeah, and and, um, and i go, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say that's how i couch it to them as well that in order for me to be effective, like i need to learn about your business and i need to learn about your goals.
1: Yeah. And that's and that's that is is easy for me. Any anybody wants to tell you about their business? Like i can learn conceptually about your business and and when i am really successful in sales, it's because i have have been able to latch on and internalize the concept of your business and position myself as like a, a co-dreamer with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I can can pull the yes and like, oh, that's cool. What if you did such and such, you know, that would save you a bunch of money. Or what if you did such and such, that would open you up to a huge new audience and and conceptually that works and if i can put myself position myself as a co-dreamer with a client and get them really excited then that's great but i still okay i can save you a bunch of money but i don't know the value of a bunch of money and if i say okay so how much money would that actually save you a lot of times they they either don't know or or don't want to tell me and so so that's i don't have a budget that's an easy situation for me because you can, you know, throw out some, well, okay, well, you don't have a budget. Is this a a $3,000 project or a $30,000 project or a $100,000 project? And they'll, you know, you can tell by their face immediately, yep. like what the budget is, right? So like, fine. But but I think it it actually goes in both directions. It's not necessarily me seeing what value I ought to extract from a project. Sometimes it's, from a, a sense of responsibility, just doing a high pass and figuring out if what I need to charge you at a minimum is even going to be worth it to you, if it is going to add as much value to you as I am going to ask you for. Because if not, it's just not responsible for me to do that work. And and so so it does go both ways. It's both, am I getting enough value from you? And also, am I giving enough value to you? But still, like... And Jen, you had some some good words that I'm gonna go back and, and write down and you know repeat verbatim with my clients. But like how how do you open up numbers and, and maybe like, I don't know, maybe a case study, like if anybody has you know an example that comes to mind of a project that they were approaching or, or bidding or whatever, and and how you steered the conversation from, oh yeah, I can save you a bunch of money to okay, just how much is a bunch? what's your, what's your strategy for that?
0: Yeah. The other thing too, um, Matt, you haven't said too much here. What, what's, what's been your, I was going to say that not,
5: I don't agree that everybody's eager to explain their Mm. business. And for me, that's usually a red flag (laughs) is when I like to ask questions. And that is my strategy for trying to learn more and figure out where my value can be for a client. Um, And it's easier after we've, you know, worked on something and I can kind of, we can establish a rapport, but I can tell immediately now I, did not pick up on this cue earlier. If somebody's annoyed by me having Mm. questions or it seems like they don't have time or they're not eager or excited to have me try and understand what they do, that's not going to be a good fit. That's not going to be a good client because my value to them is doing a thing and then shutting up and going away. And Mm. thats um, I don't think that's great for anybody. So for me, I ask as many questions as as I can. I think businesses and people's decisions on how to run them are fascinating. So I just kind of follow my interests and treat uh, a disinterest in discussing the business as kind of a red flag, not, not particulars. Like here's the maximum that we would be (laughs) excited to pay for
0: a word document. But um,
5: you know, I, I, I think somebody's response to my questioning says a lot. Yeah. I mean, the
0: only thing that I can say, you know, sometimes you see someone that may want an NDA in place, they can speak more openly. That's obviously a very different situation where they're happy to, but that's fine. Yeah, though. Yeah, and I have heard some people that yeah. say, Oh, I never yeah. send NDAs. If they don't trust me, then they're, you know, we're not going to work together. I, I think it's fine for someone to know that. That's yeah.
3: ri- that's ridiculous. NDAs are completely standard. I mean, the, the one thing that I make sure that I do is uh, I make it a mutual NDA yep. yep. where what applies to you applies to me and it's fair and away we go, but that's totally standard. You should never balk at an NDA. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, Jen, you're the one that brought yeah. up, uh, you know, this whole discussion and how to price medium to size. Do you feel? Have, have we hit on it here? Are there still some things that are still, you know, feeling like we, we could go into further?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's been a really good discussion so far. But I think I, I'm not sure if we've answered Michael's question fully yet, um, in terms of how to get the actual numbers. And maybe
1: I, maybe I can ask, maybe I can ask my question in a more specific way. Yeah, which is like, if somebody like because clients are, are sort of I'm never surprised when a client is cagey about numbers, because I'm sure they've been taken advantage of in the past. And, you know, if I'm If I'm new, it'll take me some time to qualify myself as not someone who will take advantage of them. Fine. Is there a way to ask about numbers without – to find out about numbers without actually asking about numbers?
2: I think there is a way that you can approach it. You can arm yourself with knowledge before going into discussion, even by having – a few great friends, I mean, you can just go around to the members of this podcast and say, this is what I think the project is going to look like. Can you give me a napkin sketch of what you would want to charge for this project? And usually if you ask enough people, even just three or four, the numbers will triangulate to a point where you should be satisfied about what you think it's worth. And if you're armed with that knowledge, it can also help in your confidence when you're talking to the client, because if they throw out a number that's way off or way too low, you can you can know that something's that something's not quite right, and that you have to continue the discussion and delve deeper into what exactly is missing between your sort of corroborated numbers and what they're expecting.
0: Yeah, to to tie it back, I'm I'm thinking of a project where I did just that. I had to kind of gut check where I had priced a project against someone else from the community and. It also goes back to the fact that I had originally done a lower price project for this client. And because of Mm -hmm. that, they then later wanted to do an e-commerce build with a heavy um, Salesforce integration. And so we ended up kind of being anchored by that original project. And I remember I told this other person someone I trust how much we were doing for this craft commerce build, Salesforce integration, not just integration, but... Very, very deep integration. He was just like, oh, no, you're, you're not going to do well on that project. And that's the downside of a <laughs> <laughs> fixed bid when you end up, you know, kind of bidding on the wrong end of things. And for some reason, you mm-hmm. think it's going to be a lot easier than it is. Um, it can definitely help to vet it against someone that you trust. And, you know, maybe you want an NDA with that person. But everyone, especially in shop talk, is pretty good. And, and the world is big enough that we're not usually competing against each other on on a project.
3: Yeah. Well, well Patrick, you just landed a pretty sizable project. And without getting into any specifics, can you tell us how did you manage to do it?
0: Uh, so actually, it's it's one where we are subcontracting to a larger agency. So that mm-hmm. goes back. Yeah. But but you were competing with other people to get it, right? Uh, yes, as as a subcontractor. Yeah. No, right. And honestly, I don't know exactly what it it, it never felt like we were they were actively going between us and other bidders, is all I can mm. say. So it felt like we, we had it. It took a while to close, uh, months to close. But yeah, it's you now occupying most of my waking days. But that's not a bad thing. It's, yeah, it, this is the sort of project where at the end of it, you know, you know, we priced it pretty well, priced it where we can do a lot of good things and deal with all the complexities that we're finding as the project goes on without having to change order to them to death. But then when there is a, a new big extra piece of functionality We've also priced ourselves in a way that they they know what the pricing is and they're ready to pay it. So uh, yeah, I can't go into detail just by the, yeah.
3: Well, what do you feel it is that allowed you to get it? Was it that they trusted you and they knew that you were good and decided to do it? Or was it the proposal or was it just that they already have a budget and as long as what you're charging (laughs) is less than a certain amount, like they don't really care. Like What do you you think allowed you to get um, that?
0: And I'm just, my, my daughter's sick and in the other room and she's calling for me. So I'm going to try to keep it quick because I think she's about to bust in. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we came actually in under what their budget was, which is interesting not like criminally low or anything, but, um, to the point where it helped us close it from the beginning, we demonstrated a lot of knowledge about exactly what they're doing and how we would do it and made them feel from the start. Like the project had already kicked off and we were there ready to, uh, you know, be with them and already understood their project even in the proposal stages.
1: I, I would I would love to hear for, from someone you might need to, to bust out and go help your daughter, but like, because like, the podcast isn't Selling medium to large size projects, we've talked about that on, on episodes before, it's pricing medium to large size projects. So like maybe we should steer back towards that direction. I would love to hear how you actually priced because I know what my strategy is, but I'd <laughs> love to hear y'all like, like, what is, well, then what is the what is the like the flowchart of how you price those projects? so that you can can do good work like what questions are you asking yourself and how do you like stage that out with discovery and and proposals and and stuff like how do how do y'all actually price a project like give me an example
3: jonathan you've worked on some pretty decently sized projects how do you do it
4: it's just extensive discovery process so i just my goal is always to eliminate surprises because i think surprises are the the ultimate boogeyman Um, when you start getting into projects Mm -hmm. that are medium and larger sized. And so just mitigating my risk, my risk of losing time, of losing money on that project. So I think just being really thorough, asking as many questions as you can of the client, getting them to explain their ideas as clearly as they can and trying to sort of Document the scope of that project. So my call how do
3: you get the number? How do you get the number? The number? Well, I is it what you I can don't get away charge with? Charge per hour.
4: I don't charge <laughs> per hour, but I but I have a pretty good idea of how, or a pretty good. I'm pretty good at estimating how long something will take. I do take that into account, but I also tend to take value into it as well. Honestly, it's like a little bit of alchemy uh, with me. I don't have a, a hard and fast. Uh, rule for it, but I the the baseline is how long I think it'll take me compared with uh, the value to the client.
3: I mean, the simple answer is you want the the number to be as big as it can possibly be that yeah. would still be accepted, yeah. right? So that's <laughs>
4: exactly right. That is the simple answer. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But yeah. but also you don't want to feel like that you are taking advantage yep. either. So like you know, right. even if the client is like maybe willing to pay this, is this really what I should be charging them? Um, I feel like that's always a uh, a delicate.
0: Um, yeah, one, right. one so, thing I that Janet put into her notes uh, in prep for the show was uh, Mike Montero's, and I'll keep it G-rated, but it was F you pay me. A great talk he did at oh, yeah. a, I think, Creative Mornings talk a number of years ago, talking about the importance of being paid and charging for your work and having contracts. Uh, the other thing that I'll note too, uh, Mike Montero has a book called Design is a Job that we can link in the show notes. Great book. And if anyone hasn't read it, it, it it's terrific. It, it talks about taking yourself seriously, being good about contracts, being paid what you're worth. It, it's a, you know one of the uh, A Book Apart books. And one line in it that he has, I'm going to paraphrase, is that if you give your, your client a quote or your rate and you slap them in, across the face, if they're complaining about the slap rather than your rate, that's a problem. And I again a little bit of a funny quote, but I always think that you need to get to the point where people are haggling and trying to get you down in price a little bit. If you're having far too many of your prices just accepted on your first price point, it it probably means you're not charging enough. Clients like to haggle. They're not going to be deeply insulted by you if you come back at a price that's maybe a little bit higher than what they wanted, or they just want to get you down in price a little bit. But if they're saying yes from the get-go far too often, then you're probably not charging enough.
3: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So you're going out there and you're slapping clients. I can't imagine Jen only is go do that. As, a, as a very courteous. Con- <laughs> only, okay. Only metaphor. Like <laughs> yeah, I read
5: strange. your book and I'm losing all my clients. I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong.
3: <laughs> now I need a lawyer.
5: Right, so
1: you give your client a quote and then you tell them their hockey team sucks. <laughs>
0: Oh, oh. oh! Wow! That's probably, probably worse. You yeah. drop the
1: right.
2: stick, you drop your gloves, and you go at it.
1: <laughs> Actually, wow. wow! You know what? Now that I now that I think about it, we've been talking about how nice Canadians are, <laughs> but 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 then they nationalized a sport that is basically beating people up. Like
5: that's where they let it like, all
1: that, out. That I yeah. I now understand the full. Context of Canadian niceness is that they bottle it up <laughs> and channel it, channel right. it into to it to fights right. in hockey.
3: Hockey fights are very polite, <laughs> though. You know they, they they can get a little bloody, but they end when they're supposed to end, and everyone just kind of stands back and watches. And they go in their
1: boxes. <laughs> yeah. They go. They go do that. Oh man, well, I I feel like you know, like I feel like it, it is. It's alchemy, and it's always hand wavy. Like I have a hard time getting peers to explain to me how they price projects, because it never seems to be like, not because they don't want to tell me, but because it's hard to actually self-analyze how, what the framework is. A lot of it is hand wavy and it's just from experience like you, you get yes. a feel for these things, and and the, the that, problem is, what it is, but Michael. the problem is, I don't necessarily have experience doing work for a Fortune 100 company for a project that's going to rig in six or seven figures. But but I would like for you to explain it to me, like, <laughs> and so like, <laughs> I, and a lot of it, the thing is, just, I, just building I'm on very
0: older cool. projects. Like you keep on kind of moving up and up and. You know, one year you're doing $20,000 projects, then you're doing $30,000 projects. And then maybe at some point you have a big jump and it opens up the doors to other larger clients. I think it's also a little bit of a it's a ladder.
1: Yeah.
5: But for that initial pricing, I think I, I think it's hard to come up with the right number. We wouldn't have anything to talk about. I take the pressure off of it by almost always starting with a range. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is what this feels like to me. And usually the upper end of the range is comfortable for me and deeply uncomfortable for the potential Mm -hmm. client and I say okay let's talk some more and narrow that range and once we've talked enough that you know you can kind of feel out where their budget is by once you've got the range down to a point where they want to talk about what to do next instead of having more conversations to get it to you know tighter parameters then I I, it's kind of a it's a dance but I always start with a range of numbers or almost always
3: that seems.
0: To it be sounds helpful. like
5: you
3: just want to be talking.
0: To <laughs> actually, that
5: takes me back. A, yeah. that's,
3: that's sure.
5: They they say we need to we need to get off this call now.
1: Right. We, yeah. So right. I mean, I like actually. So so I feel like I might be doing it wrong because my pricing strategy is fairly straightforward, and I, mm-hmm. I probably am am leaving a lot of money on the table. Maybe, but if someone you know approaches me with with a, a mid size project, which I define as you know somewhere in the five figures. My strategy is I will spend a, a couple conversations talking to them about their business and just kind of you know, like I say dreaming with them about what it is that they they want to build and and how it'll impact them. And then I will immediately ask them to start paying me for discovery and I ask them to to pay me one day at a time for discovery and and I'll give them an estimate of of like how long I think it will take for me to go discover the things you know
0: do you invoice them at the end of
1: every day I will communicate them at the end of it, with them at the end of every day so I'll invoice them at the end of, wow. of discovery but like I'll say at the beginning okay I think it's gonna once I've got them sufficiently excited that I'm the person to do the work, And that they want to do the work, then I'll say, okay, I think it's going to take me about three days to really dig into this problem, talk to all your stakeholders, evaluate the technical options, and but let's take it a day at a time. My daily rate is sufficiently comfortable that like to pay me a day at a time isn't a big deal for them. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't like seem like a huge chunk of money, and so end of day one, okay, here's what I talked to, here's what I learned, here are the questions I still have to answer. I still think it's going to take me about three days. I think that estimate was good. Talk to you tomorrow. End of day two. Okay. Talk to such and such people. These answers I got easier than I thought I would. Uh, here's some questions that I think it might take me a little bit more time to answer. You know, talk to you tomorrow. Okay. End of end of day three. Okay, cool. Got all these answers. Got all the, or, eh, I think I need another half day. You know, like
3: okay, it, Michael, Michael. Before we get into okay. day four so, 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 <laughs> so right. The point is, the point I'm is for day.
1: Is, the me. point is, I can get people to pay me for discovery because it seems like it's going because it seems like it's small enough chunks of money that yeah, I, I could see it turning people not, off. like there's
0: like, there's so many off ramps where people are just like okay and yeah we're at three days now I don't know well, how many more how days they're time. going to be like yeah there, there's so many points at which you're making them like you know like well but that's but that's why I think the, yeah. yeah
1: that's that's why I think it's important to like give them that mental progress bar at the end yeah. of every day like okay we expected to be about 30 percent of the way through our fact finding and in fact we are 30% of the way through our fact finding, this is going great, right? And that's usually how the conversation goes is it's just, it's a mental progress bar for them so that they can see it moving along. And and I'm sharing with them what I'm learning because they're paying me to do that. And then at the end of discovery, I will have a pretty good idea of how many weeks it will take me to, to do that work. And I usually, like I know my shop rate, I try to give myself about like a 30% margin over my shop rate and I estimate how many weeks I think it will take me, I give myself about a 30% margin over that, and I say, okay, here is the estimated cost of this project based on everything I learned in discovery and and that is what i think the price tag will be and they will either fall or they won't
3: all right Uh, let's see if we can get jen in here so i'm curious jen do you charge for discovery when you're first engaging with a client
2: we used to not charge for discovery um Mm -hmm. and then realized that we absolutely have to um for a few reasons one is it's it's work and it's also valuable work because as michael described you're 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 doing a lot of stakeholder interviews. You're synthesizing it. You're putting together a a fact sheet and an analysis of their business and their issues. So that's, that's management consulting or it's design or it's software design. So Absolutely. that's work that should be paid for. And there's also been a few cases where people, if, if you don't charge for it, people may just take that discovery and you know send it over to Upwork and get someone mm-hmm. to build it. So mm-hmm. it's important to charge for it. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Jen, is I, I've had it on numerous occasions where I've done a discovery process and the discovery process figured out that they don't need me, Yeah. right? Or, or they want someone. And so you absolutely should be paid for that. Right. For sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and if you find that people shy away from paying for it, they, they may, that may be a indicator, a red flag of what they're going to be like to work with. Um, so if they're not willing to, or they just disappear, then it's, it, it may not be a good idea to work with.
5: I talked with somebody that treated discovery as, uh, I I have a friend that, that has not billed for it in the past and has, has been a little bit burned to help clarify a lot of things and then not be able to recoup the cost of that um, it's definitely not me it's just a friend but um, <laughs> it's definitely you <laughs> <Yeah>. well <laughs> but anyway um, I talked to somebody that um, does charge for the discovery process but also treats it as uh, like either discounts it for work, working on the project or has some way of, of building that into the project to say hey you know you will pay me for this but should we work on the project which is really everybody's expectation it will either be included or discounted or something like that to kind of Walk both ways and and not Mm -hmm. shock the client, but then also protect that time in the event that the client decides they don't need you or want to go a different way with it. I thought that was kind of clever.
1: Yeah. Okay. So
5: so
0: so somebody critique critique my strategy,
1: right? No. Like, tell me, tell me where, tell me where my pricing is good. We we, we, uh,
0: got to save it for the next one. No. (laughs) No. 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 We're at an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah. Next spot for the record, I'll say I haven't done the paid discovery thing, but now I want to. But uh, also concerned about. All right. So, daughter, I don't know. She went Maybe really you should quiet. go check. To- oh, no. Watching uh, we've got Tinkerbell and the Pirate Fairy. Going Listen, on. if
3: Patrick, if your daughter is seriously injured, I'm going to blame Michael. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we all will. We all will. All right, and with that. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. <laughs> so that wraps it up uh, for another episode of the Dev mode <laughs> FM podcast. Yeah, we're going out. <laughs> oh my gosh. To have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. I think we're on there now. Nope. Anywhere where you can find podcasts. I mean, if yet. you're listening, I hope you're subscribed. I, I don't know who these people are that listen without subscribing. And if you like what you're doing, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways for other people to hear about us uh, on the iTunes store. You can all th- also follow us on Twitter. We are at devmodefm, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Give us a comment on the devmode.fm website. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Patrick Harrington. I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Jonathan Melville. I'm Matt Stein. I'm Michael Rogg. And thank you very much, Jen Bloomberg.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Is it Bloomberg or Blumberg? You know, Did I say bumper?
2: It's it's actually both. We spell it with a U, so as not to be confused with you know the New York guy.
3: You know you know, are you are much more accommodating. Oh, you are yeah. much you are much 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 more accommodating than uh, <laughs> than Vector Media, Matt Weinberg. Oh
2: yeah, he was, he, <laughs> he he was, was very was upset about the group thing, wasn't he? You,
3: he was very Vector Web Design. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was so mad about. The name of the of the company, and then he changed the name. (laughs) He was he was so mad about it, he had to find a different
4: name. We
1: we ruined we ruined the Vector Group.
4: (laughs)
3: This is
1: also a very long. All right, someone cue the music.
5: (laughs) Bye bye.
3: I apologize, Michael, but we were just getting way. That's over okay. Time. We'll do it in the <laughs> comments.